Welcome to the Explorer Poet Podcast, an exploration of the blurry line separating our physical world from our abstract realities. You talk about something called a soul's high adventure. Man is born with a certain functioning. A kind of house of meaning that we dwell in. A clandestine land found underneath your floorboards. These represent a common human inheritance. A common vocabulary of rituals and symbols. Let's let you know where you are. Such and such a hero has done so and so, and that is your what am I going to do, quit? That's not an option. you got to keep on keeping on. Life's a garden, dig it. You make it work for you. You never give up. Follow your bliss. I mean, find where it is and don't be afraid to, to follow it. Conversations and stories, myths and reality, science and the gods we worship, the esoteric and the everyday. Come explore with me. My guest today is Johnny Miller, a curious Samanat, writer, podcaster, and nervous system specialist. Johnny is the host of the Curious Humans podcast and author of the Curious Humans newsletter. He also leads a five-week boot camp on nervous system mastery. I truly enjoyed my conversation with Johnny, and I hope you do as well. Hey, hi, Johnny. Hey, Josh. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming. I really appreciate it. I reached out to you because, uh, as I said, there's a bunch of stuff that you do, that you're doing, and you, you put it up online, and it's really interesting. And so, I, I want to like dive into a bunch of the stuff you're doing. But uh, just to kick it all off, there's like one, it seems like there's one specific theme that runs through a lot of your work and the things that you're interested in, and that's mm -hmm. curiosity. Mm. And I just think it would be interesting to get your thoughts on, on curiosity and why it's important. What is it? What, what do you get from it? Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, I, I've been pretty fascinated by curiosity for, for a while now. And I think, I think this came initially from, I went to a pretty strict school in England and I felt like I, the, the education system was created in such a way that it really seemed to kind of like crush that innate sense of curiosity that I, I think I had as a kid. Like I was always asking why I was like asking all these questions and the teachers, honestly, they like got annoyed. Like I got in trouble um, for being curious really. And um, the more that I've kind of explored curiosity, the more it feels like, it feels like the birthplace of creativity in many ways. It feels like the, the antidote to, to depression um, and also to, fear and conflict in many ways. I think it's very hard to be angry at someone if you're simultaneously curious about them. Um, it feels like the, the key to really beautiful conversations as well and conversations that, that lead to insights and lead to connection and, and flow. Um, and, and honestly, I think it's just a, a, a virtue and a, and a kind of pillar that I've attempted to integrate into my life. And so in some ways, the podcast is like an extension of that question of, of like, how can I continue to be more curious and what are the, what gets in the way of that innate curiosity? Um, and yeah, and, and there's also a sense of like adventure in it for me as well. I think I've always been interested in ad adventures, both like in terms of travel and, and like expeditions when I was younger and more recently kind of in, inner adventures, like self-inquiry, self self-exploration. Um, and I feel like curiosity is essential to, to both of those. Yeah, absolutely. 
it's interesting that you talk about that inner world and that outer world, how there's a curiosity that goes both directions. They mm-hmm. kind of feed off of each other and they kind of bounce off of each other. But um, the the tagline for the podcast, for this podcast is exploring that the blurry line between our physical world and our abstract reality. And it's mm-hmm. that thing, right? Like where we go, uh, you know, I'm curious about this outer world, but then, but then it causes you to turn that question back on yourself. Well, why am I curious about this outer world? Or why am I curious mm-hmm. about this aspect of the outer world? It's really yeah. interesting because you also brought up like the the innate curiosity of like childhood. It seems like uh, the, the longer I live, it seems like the less and the less I believe that, well, it's like when I was a kid, kids kids are all kids and you all behave like kids and you're all curious about the world and then just like you were saying as you get older you're kind of taught that that curiosity uh is i don't know not Mm -hmm. necessary or maybe dangerous or just not helpful and so Mm -hmm. you lose that and so you you turn into what's called like an adult (laughs) (laughs) allegedly yeah Yeah, allegedly And, (laughs) and uh i don't know there's you know you see a lot in like um for example like uh in scriptural language, you you hear about being reborn as a little child. Um, in mm-hmm. in a lot of Me like uh, depth psychology, like Carl Jung talks about, you know, becoming a child again. And mm-hmm. um, it's interesting because then then how do you allow that to go forth? I think it's that curiosity. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot here. Um, I think part of the reason that we lose it is we get rewarded for kind of giving correct answers as opposed to asking interesting questions. Um, And I also think that the ways in which we are kind of punished or subtly shamed as children, it it also kind of shuts off that innate sense of like, um, like naive kind of like, almost like wonder as well. I think that's kind of like, like wonder, curiosity, or they're all kind of like in the same, in the same realm of things. And I think that really does get shut off the more that we, the more that our worldview becomes narrowed um, and, and what you were saying around like the distinction between the inner world and the outer world, I also feel like our, our, our inner world is basically our lens on our outer world. So we kind of, we see, we see through the lens of our nervous systems, we see through the lens of our, of our beliefs and, and our upbringings. And um, I think that also kind of plays a role in this as well. Yeah. And I think that that, that's really interesting because those lenses get kind of constructed as we grow. We kind mm-hmm. of build them up with mm-hmm. our, like you were saying, our environments, our stories, our beliefs. And then um, the thing that's really interesting is that when you hit that, when, when people hit a point where those, they, they're tired of being an adult in the way that they've been taught to be an adult, they're tired of the stories or they're tired of the obligations, mm-hmm. it's, um, it's like a return back to that curiosity though that, that is that enables you to kind of move into it's like uh if you think about the process of reincarnation as a psychological Mm. experience and every Mm. time every time that some story gets peeled away and you have to experience some kind of a death there's always Mm. a rebirth at the other side there's always some kind of new new thing that arises from Mm. that and i can't imagine that new thing being led by anything but curiosity because mm. if it's not curiosity, you're just going to follow the same pattern again of letting somebody else's story build up in your mind or, or become that belief system. Mm. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, I do think that we go through these, these death, rebirth, 
processes and cycles. And in some ways, that is the kind of the, the endless hero's journey of the inner adventure, which kind of go, like happens over and over again in different ways. And when we return back to the, the ordinary world in kind of Joseph Campbell's language, um, we do see through new eyes. We see through the eyes of the one that has, has uh, been through the challenges and the, the, the surrender to, that was in, in the previous cycle. Um, so I think that's really interesting. Um, and there is curiosity inherent in that, I think. And, and then we become comfortable and complacent in the ordinary world again. And when we start to get kind of lose that curiosity, that I think is when the next call to adventure comes where it's like, okay, we need to like go, something else is ready to, is ready to die again. And we kind of go through that process. Yeah, absolutely. Is that where you see like, cause earlier you were saying curiosity or a lack of curiosity could also be a source of depression. Mm. Is that, mm. is that, um, moment where you realize it's time to do something different? Is that what depression is trying to, is that where the depression creeps up? That's interesting. Um, so I, I think of it as, let me think about this. I think of depression as, as basically a stagnation. It's like, it's like a very natural cycle that has just become stuck. There's like a stuckness. And so in some ways, the curiosity is, is the way out. It's like the question might be, um, what is it that I'm afraid to feel right now or what is it that I'm running from? or um like, like like those questions then allow the depression to kind of reveal whatever it's been protecting um much of the time anyway uh yeah and 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 i like the people that i've known who've, who've gone through these phases of depression there is an like an inherent lack of curiosity there's a sense of like everything is fixed this is the way it will always be you know it's like it's this perpetual stuckness yeah, that, um, that makes a lot of sense. And so the question is like, how can curiosity be, be like reinvigorated? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've, al- I've often thought of, when I've experienced depression, I've often thought about it. I've never thought about it as stagnation, but I, it makes a lot of sense because I've thought about it as, as um, the story no longer fits. Like mm-hmm. whatever you've been mm-hmm. doing, it no longer works. And that's that stagnation you're talking about. Like you, you, mm-hmm. you want it to keep going and then... It's almost for me, it may be different for other people, but it's almost like the depression sets in when you start to feel the difference between what you're experiencing and what the story is telling you you should be experiencing. And so there's like a... Yeah, or, or that, or it's like, it's like a resisting of that dying process that you talked mm. about. Um, it, uh, it yeah, is, yeah. Is, is my sense. It's like a resistance to the natural process of some aspect of the self, be it a story, be it an identity, is wanting to die. And you're clinging to it <laughs> and that, that creates the sense of stuckness. Yeah. But if you are, if you are able to really surrender and let it go, then the depression will quickly move. Cause I think the depression is the resistance to that, gotcha. that process. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause the curiosity could be, could just start with like, why do I feel this way? Or why isn't this working? And then as you go deeper, mm-hmm. it, you, you get to those deeper, like bigger questions like, well, why, why is the mm-hmm. story stagnated? Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting. So, um, with uh, with your curiosity, uh, sorry, with your Curious Humans podcast, I was I was scanning through the site, and you have this phrase on here, and you already mentioned it once here, actually, uh, about wonder. But you say curiosity mm-hmm. is a gateway to awe and wonder, and um, I think it's beautiful. I think uh, there's a lot of 
there's a, that's a there's a lot to talk about in there. But what is what is it about on wonder? Like what do, what do on wonder do for us? Why why would we want to get to that? Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's a beautiful question. And um, and what type of I guess are well maybe I'll give you that I'll, I'll let you answer that and then I'll hit you with another. <laughs> okay, so I'm I'm just thinking back to like a moment where uh, I really felt like I was experiencing that. Um, so so after I left school, I went traveling around the world for eleven months, and I learned to surf. And about six months in. I was surfing on this Indonesian island called Nias, and there were maybe kind of like 12, 14 foot waves. And I caught this, this one wave and I just, I kind of kicked out the other side and I just felt this like absolute, like rapturous connection with everything, with the ocean, with the, with the, with the world around me, with myself. And it, it like it expanded my capacity to feel joy and, and awe at the same time. Um, and I've had, you know, a few experiences similar to that in, in the years since. And I think, I think what awe, rapture, wonder do is, is they, they deeply plug us back into the world around us. Like, like the, the, the question, what is the meaning of life makes no sense when you are in a state of awe or wonder <laughs> or rapture. It would be ludicrous to ask that question. Um, so is, it's, is that it's like, because because you're experiencing it in the moment? Yeah, because you are so deeply experiencing the meaning in in that moment and the deep connection to yourself and, and the world around you. Often it's in nature. You know, it doesn't it doesn't have to be. A lot of physicists, I think, experience a lot of awe and wonder in their work. Yeah, because I think it can it plugs them into the the in, immense nature of reality <laughs> that many of us don't really get the opportunity to, to deeply explore um psychedelics do this as well yeah like they are generally a, a, a fast track to experiencing awe and wonder in many cases um and so i think it, it kind of in some ways like returns us to our more essential nature I, I think the the malaise or the condition of um modernity in, in some ways is being trapped in this like separate self is being trapped in the left brain way of seeing things, as Ian Miguel, as Ian McGilchrist says, where we're we're in the abstract, we're deconstructing, we're analyzing, we're abstracting, we're living in the nouns instead of living in the verbs, as Bucky Fuller would say. And and awe and wonder and rapture, they like reconnect us to to being a verb. <laughs> if that makes sense. To being yeah, to uh, being the to being part of it all. Like to yeah 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 yeah. It's interesting. Um, Oh man, my mind goes so many different places. But with awe and wonder, the way I I don't want to like um use the wrong terminology, but just the the words that we've been using as like we 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 talked a little bit about depression, or you talk about like the mm -hmm. malaise, and then on mm -hmm. the other side there's awe, wonder, rapture, mm -hmm. and it's almost uh, are these are these like the two polarities of the experience of of that cycle. Or of mm. um, reaching a point where your curiosity, your curiosity in a thing has tapped out, and then you need to pursue a different path. Mm. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. I guess I'm just trying to think of are like are these emotions or these feelings? Could they be like guideposts? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think they. I, I mean, for, for a while, I certainly chased the peak states of awe and wonder and rapture um 
think because a lot of my childhood had been quite devoid of them. Yeah. Um, and at a certain point, there's a realization of like, uh, there's a sense that that is accessible in any moment. You don't have to be surfing a 15 foot wave in order to, <laughs> in order to connect with that. Mm, well, it certainly yeah. helps. Um, yeah. And, and in some ways they are, I think, important. Um, it's almost like what's coming to mind is, is like they open up the aperture of our experience. So when, when our lens on the world becomes very narrowed and abstracted and, um, limited and, and, and boring and lacks curiosity these moments these experiences kind of like widen it open again and we can kind of take in more experience so kind of like um aldous huxley uh, when he when he first took mescaline he basically said that it like um allowed him to perceive more of reality if we think of the brain as this yeah. instrument which basically filters filters out like 99.8 percent of of reality and things like psychedelics or an experience of awe and wonder, it like opens up that so that we can kind of actually take in more. Yeah. Um, that makes and, a lot of it, sense. Yeah. I'll go ahead. Yeah. And it would be, it would be challenging to, you know, walk around New York city in that state. Cause I think you just, you, just, you would be overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah. So, so there is this sense of like, um, there's a necessary, like, like limiting of, of how much we take in so that we're not completely, completely overwhelmed and we're able to function in certain ways. But it's, I think it's important to remember that that is there as well. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it, it's interesting the way that you, you talk about how you can just tap into that experience at any moment. So mm. that, obviously, I think that probably comes with training. And it's probably uh, everybody who's listening is probably like, well, how do you do it? How do you do it in, <laughs> in that moment? You know, the one that's really hard. I think everybody probably messes up, but... Uh, and is, is like slips from that sense of connection. But mm -hmm. yeah, I think it's, it's probably like um, with meditation, like you mentioned psychedelics, um, doing things like surfing, where you experience it for a moment and then at other times you're able to recall it or, or kind of put mm -hmm. yourself back in that moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, there's an idea um, from, from Danny Kahneman who talks about altered, altered state become altered traits and when there's sufficient neuroplasticity in the brain and the nervous system these states can become more kind of fixed traits more ways that we begin to kind of view the world because I, I i mean a, a peak experience whether it's through breath work or psychedelics would i think you know not really be helpful in the long run if some of those changes didn't then kind of rewire our system to some degree in, in the long term. Uh -huh. um, and it's, you've, you know, there have been many studies that have shown meditation does rewire the brain in many ways. Um, I believe that breath work does as well. Like for, for me, the breath is kind of the quickest way to, to shift our state yeah. um, in, in, in different directions. Um, and yeah, and different forms of meditation as well and contemplative practice. Yeah. With, for you with breath work, uh, is this, this is the modality that you've landed on that works well, well, well with you or works best for you. Can, mm -hmm. Do you mind like, um, when you think I might be fishing here a little bit, cause I have a lot of thoughts about these things, but when you think about the breath work, when you think about breathing, um, are you able to articulate some of your thoughts or experiences around like, what is, what is the breathing and why is it effective? Well, there are many different breathing practices and even lineages as well, different practices of 
used by pretty much every indigenous culture around the world. Um, there are the kind of pranayama-based practices, which are very effective for shifting your state in that moment. So you could do like, like bellows breath or breath of fire to kind of stimulate the nervous system to build more energy, build more alertness. Um, or you could do more relaxing pranayamas with extended exhales, humming, things like this, which will activate the parasympathetic system, which then kind of calms down, ground us, allows us to relax. But the, the, the modality that I've been trained in is called facilitated breath repatterning. And this involved a circular breathing practice lying down for about 90 minutes long to a soundtrack. And it's much more akin to a psychedelic journey where you're breathing in this way and it pretty quickly creates an altered brain state where subconscious material is able to surface and, and rise. And different breathing rhythms are generally correlated with different emotions. And what often happens is when we're unable to breathe into a certain part of our body, that's an indication that there's a certain emotion or experience that is being resisted. And so the invitation there is to kind of soften into that, allow the repressed emotion or memory to arise and then to kind of fully feel it and to, and to let it go. And that uh, is something that, you know, I've done probably 250, 300 journeys at this point. Um, and like you were saying with the kind of the death rebirth cycles, whilst there might be resistance and, and struggle and challenge going into that experience, there's almost always uh, an opening, a sense of like deep connection, sometimes bliss, Sometimes DMT can be released from the pineal gland and you feel a sense of like, uh, again, rapture kind of comes in again yeah. as well. Um, and that's been, that's been probably the most life altering practice for me personally. So it's a, you said it's like a 90 minute session where you're laying on your back mm -hmm. and the breathing is, did you say this style is a, it's like a relaxed breathing where you're trying to activate your, your, uh, what did you say? Your para? I'm going to say it wrong. Parasympathetic. Yeah. So, so it's it, it's actually it's actually combining both. So it's using oh, okay, gotcha. conscious connected breathing, which is a circular breath. It's an active full inhale, but then a relaxed exhale. Gotcha. So there are certain modalities like holotropic, which are just like active inhale, active exhale. It's like huffing and puffing, right. which okay. can actually throw us outside of our window of tolerance and kind of dysregulate us further. Right. Um. But this kind of honors both. It's it's like, it's a very natural. Uh, breath and there's no pause at the top or the bottom gotcha um, no pause mm -hmm. so that's what makes it circular so it just keeps going mm -hmm. yeah. gotcha okay i've done a lot of like i've done a lot of different breathing exercises and i've done like the the four second four second four second where you're breathing in you're holding it and um yeah i can definitely say that it can get me to these altered states of physical mm -hmm. experience and these altered states of mental experience what the way that I think about it, you probably think about it in a much more physical, maybe scientific or like ner nervous system from a nervous system perspective. But when I think about breathing, um, I think it's really fascinating. Like I think that there are obviously there's these two parts of us. There's the conscious self and the unconscious self, and and breathing is this weird thing where where you don't have to do it manually. It's an it's an automatic process and so you can just sit there and you'll, your body will breathe for you but then you also have the ability to do that active breathing to take control in a conscious way of the exercise and so it's this strange thing that is um it's like the shared in our body between the two parts between the subconscious and the conscious 
And in that way, it seems like that alone right there is is kind of the indication that it's a portal or like it's a mm-hmm. gateway to that other part of us. And then the breathing in and the breathing out, as you're saying, right? Like the breathing in, to breathe in is an active process where the diaphragm is pulling down. And mm-hmm. so the lungs are filling. And so it's a, it's an, it's an action. And then, you know, you could breathe out actively, like you could push air out, but at the same time, you can relax and let it leave on its own. And so in a way, the breathing in is kind of the controlling or the order creating side of us. And then the breathing out is that relaxing, natural kind of subconscious Mm -hmm. state. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know, I have a lot of thoughts that go kind of down that rabbit hole about how these two things interconnect. But it's just Mm -hmm. fascinating to look at it from a, in all these different perspectives, you can look at it from, you know, the mythical, the mythical or mystical perspective of like the shaman who goes on these journeys because of the breath work. But then there's also just, um, in a moment, if you've been practicing meditation in a moment, uh, you can capture that, you know, if, if you, you feel an emotion welling up inside of you that you don't want to take over yourself, yourself through practice, be like, practice of the breath work between that conscious self and subconscious self, you can kind of manage that in a, in a more, I don't know, adult manner. Mm. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's actually two processes, at least in the body, which are both conscious and unconscious. Our vision as well is something that happens naturally. And we can also shift it by kind of like Uh. defocusing our eyes, dilating our vision, softening our gaze. And that also has a kind of, um, parallel effect with the nervous system as well. Um, but in, in terms of if, if emotions arise using the breath to kind of help to regulate it, it, it's interesting because there are times when, um, like let's, let's say anger starts to arise. You kind of have two choices. One, one path is if you're in like a boardroom meeting or uh, you know, some, some like a busy place and it might not be socially appropriate to kind of express it or go into it, then you can use the breath to to ground, to calm down, kind of breathing into your belly, into your pelvic floor, finding a sense of like, like a grounded center um, and spaciousness. Um, or you could use the breath to like breathe into it more intensely to kind of activate even further and give the the energy of the frustration or the anger Kind of permission to be expressed and to kind of come out, um, which it, it, I actually believe is kind of the more healthy thing in, in some ways because it allows us to not push it down and repress it. Right. And there yeah. are times when when we need to buffer it for later, but if if there's not then an opportunity down the line, ideally like later that day to kind of feel the thing, it kind of gets stored in our in our nervous system uh, or in, like as tension and you, you know you see people walking around who have like really tense faces and they're like they're like red in the cheeks and they're walking around with their shoulders like hunched over protecting their internal organs and it's like most likely they just have a lot of these emotions which have kind of arisen and they've just like pushed them down so their body just becomes this like very tense constricted uh unfluid piece of machinery yeah <laughs> Yeah, that meant, if do you with this um, from going way back to the very beginning of our conversation, where you're saying curiosity can take you in a lot of different 
places. One of the things you mentioned was that curiosity can help you be curious about other people. Mm -hmm. So the way that you're describing this, I imagine that I imagine you don't just walk around like observing people and being like, hmm, I wonder what's going on with them. But Some, sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, sure. But I don't know. Talk to me. Talk to me a little bit about that, like the curiosity of discovering this stuff within yourself and then being able to, to, see, it, to see it in others. What does it do for you? Yeah. It's, um, I actually spoke to my breathwork teacher, Ed, around this um, because he's someone who, uh, he's almost like a kind of Sherlock Holmes for physiology. So, so someone could walk into a room and he could assess through their gait, through their posture, through their breathing pattern, through um, physiological signs, basically like a whole bunch of different uh, lightly experiences that they've had as children, ways that their caretakers treated them, how this shows up in their relationships. And in some ways like this is, it's like a pretty, like, like it, it's a power. And I mean, that could then be used to then like manipulate yeah. that person. Could, in some yeah, way, for good you, or evil. You, yeah, because yeah, you have a lot of like, you know, potentially personal information based that is, that someone is broadcasting based on their facial expression, you know, all these different things. Um, and so in terms of like how that ties back to curiosity, I think that um, the more, the more experiences that we have ourselves, the more that we can kind of track and notice that arising in other people as well. Um, like maybe to give an example, like if I, if I notice in myself that like when I, when I get nervous, say if I'm about to give a talk, my voice goes up by like a few, by like an octave or it gets slightly more high pitched Then that. I mean, this is a fairly obvious one, but then if I hear someone else speaking in a kind of a higher pitch than usual i'm like oh there's a chance they're kind of nervous right now like i wonder what's making them nervous or afraid and then that's like a kind of a, a thing to be curious about um so, so i suppose that you you just kind of acquire these different lenses through which to view other people's experience um and that can then inspire curiosity or you know there's also the option of, of not noticing anything and just um, without any kind of projections or stories and just asking someone like, 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 how are you? Like, like, what is a life for you right now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Get it from their mouth. Um, yeah. And, and, and I think a key piece in this as well is, is like, like genuine, genuine curiosity in, in my opinion, requires not having any agenda. So oh. like not having any agenda for where the conversation will go. Um, not predicting what you think they're going to say or just like waiting for your turn to speak back um and and there's a sense of like actual caring or maybe like empathy in there as well yeah um maybe these yeah. are like the these are the guidelines for not using this power as evil to maybe to, to do it in it, a genuine way yeah quite possibly um and, and being yeah being impartial again i think a key aspect of curiosity and why it's so hard is um, there, there really isn't any outcome. It, it's like, it's an mm. end in itself. Like it's, it feels good to be in that place of curiosity, but when you're, when you're being curious to kind of get somewhere, that feels like something else to me. Yeah. Potentially yeah. bordering on manipulation. Yeah. That's the thought that comes to me, especially when you talk about, because this is all in relation to other people. And so mm -hmm. when you start, when I went, 
you used the, a great word, which is projection, because anytime, that would be my fear is anytime I'm trying to analyze somebody, if I think about it enough, I'm like, oh, maybe this is just what I'm thinking. Like, this is what I see about them in myself or, or some, you know, because that, sure. that um, <laughs> until you ask them, I guess you don't really know. Yeah. And, and a lot of the time, you know, it, it, could, it, it always is projection, honestly. Like sometimes yeah. you might be right. Um, and other times it might just be you're projecting a thing that is in your experience that's completely irrelevant to them. Yeah. And, and then that also plays into that manipulation where you may then in an interaction or in your, even in your own observation of this person, mm-hmm. you may be trying to guide them. You may be trying to guide them into that projection. Mm-hmm. It's all such a, the way that the world is, or the, the way that you describe our experience being that we experience the world through a lens, mm-hmm. it all just seems so tricky because it's almost like every time I have, have a thought or an idea, I have to really go like, oh, is this, is this just the lens? And what, the biggest question, the hardest one obviously is like, what are the other lenses? Mm. What are the other ways to see things besides the way that I'm seeing them? Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess the only way to keep, it seems like the, the almost, maybe even that's why I do the podcast is because I'm like, I'm curious about other people's lenses. I'm mm-hmm. curious to see, well, even just a couple of the things that you've managed to say here has made me think like, oh, there, there's like, you know, maybe I've put my story together and then there are these little blinders that I have on and just like little things here and there. I go, oh, that, that might be something worth thinking about, worth exploring. And uh yeah, I don't know. I think that's always that's always the concern, the the projection, the mm. <laughs> the uh, getting stuck be, stuck behind your own lens. I think the good news is that there will always, or maybe bad news, there will always be a lens. There will always be a projection. There's no such thing as like an objective right. view from no view from nowhere. I think the the only question is like, are the lenses that we're using useful and and generative? Um, like I I think a lot of my favorite books are in essence they give you a new lens through which to view the world like um james Cass's finite versus infinite games it's like you then start to view uh companies or view your own projects like am i playing a finite game or am i playing an infinite game and like that becomes another like really useful lens through which to interpret your experience so i, I think to your point the only thing that matters is like making these lenses as kind of conscious as possible so that so that you're aware of them and so that they're not kind of operating behind the scenes without you really realizing this is what's happening and 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 like owning your projections like projecting isn't a bad thing it's only bad if you're doing it without realizing it and then trying to shift someone else's behavior yeah (laughs) but as soon as you kind of voice it and speak it and say like hey i have this projection then it's like great (laughs) (laughs) here it is yeah here's yeah it is it's all it's all fantasy but it's interesting that it's uh you're you're right though because a lot of the times that it does land it's like you're accurate and Mm -hmm. uh yeah the carl jung talks about it in a really interesting way where he says he's uh, he's talking more about i think about people with religion but he talks about it in a sense that like you can't criticize something from the inside if you are on the inside and so you have to be able to take a step out and have an outside lens, like have an outside angle to look back in, an outside perspective. And I don't know, something about um, books, podcasts, people who are, I think maybe, you know, I was saying I like to talk to people about what they're pursuing and then the why. And, mm-hmm. and I think that kind of captures it because it's, it's uh, 
it's, uh, you know, what have you discovered as this thing that you should be pursuing? And then the why is kind of like, how did you get to that? Well, you must have, uh, you must mm. have stepped outside enough. You, could, you must have followed enough paths, stopped, stepped outside, and then looked again to get to that point. And so, it mm. is like a, it's a, it's a process you have to learn. I think some people are really fortunate to just know from, from the time they're very young what it is that's going to be this, this thing that touches, like connects with them throughout their whole life, the, the, their very work. Few, very think. few, yeah. So, I think most people go through this like phase of, okay, I'll try this and I'll try that and I'll try this mm -hmm. and then eventually land on something. Mm -hmm. Help me understand, how did you get into, um, what, how did you get into the nervous system and nervous system mastery and how did you happen upon uh, breath work? I, I think the approach that I've generally taken um, has been one of like constant experiments. Um, I, I kind of knew when I was at university at least that the idea of getting a kind of standard corporate job in consulting just felt, I was afraid of how like mundane that could potentially be. I was, I was scared of like, you know, seeing that career path for the next like two decades. Like that was honestly kind of terrifying. And so I, I wanted to go in the, in the opposite direction. Um, and yeah, I've, I mean, I've had a very kind of like zigzagging career path from starting a, a startup, a travel company with two friends for five years called Mapia. And um, from there teaching entrepreneurship in, in London. Um, and then I think the, the moment that kind of radically changed the direction of my life was my ex-fiance at the time, wh whose name was Sophie, she suffered from bipolar. And while I was, as, while I was away, she had an anxiety attack at work as a, as a doctor and she ended up taking her own life. And that experience of, of losing her, losing my partner, losing the kind of vision that we crafted together, um, and the process of, of feeling into grief, like really, really changed me in a kind of very fundamental way. Um, and learning how to basically surrender to grief, um, that kind of led me into meditation into breath work into working with psychedelics um and that was yeah like a real turning point of, of like it started to get me interested in many of these different modalities and and the process of, of like feeling emotions and like being aware of my internal somatic experience which up until that point i hadn't really even been aware of like i wasn't completely numb but i also just wasn't didn't ever pay attention yeah or be curious about it um and during during some of my trainings uh with this guy ed it became pretty clear that the nervous system was very central to a lot of this work um both in meditation particularly in breath work um and also just to kind of working like like showing up fully for ourselves and and not getting hijacked by these like reactive tendencies that we all have in, in different times, you know, times when we get triggered, we say things we, we didn't mean to say, we, we do things, we procrastinate, you know, we, we, do, we do all these things. And um, I kind of wanted to follow the thread of like, it, it feels like being able to consciously shift and work skillfully with our nervous system is this like missing piece of then being able to live more intentionally and to, to pursue our dreams and to kind of show up as the person we want to be for our our family and our friends and, and these kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
that's kind of where it came from. Yeah, well, that's um, I mean, that's that's a hard story, man. I uh, I'm sorry to hear all that. It seems like a lot of the times that uh, it's it just seems like the hard stuff is where everything else starts, and it's mm. it, yeah, I mean, it's a hard one. Um, talk to me about the what it, in working with the nervous system. Um, what, I mean, could you give me like a five minute primer on on like how does it all how does it all come together, and then how do you manage how do you manage it? with breath work and whatever uh Mm -hmm. later on but like how does the how does the nervous system get to where it is this thing that we need to figure out or manage okay so two two questions there the first one is like what what creates dysregulation to the point where we need to like start to work with it and then the other part is then like how do we do it yeah yeah (laughs) that's that's a good summary of the questions yeah okay cool um so how do we get dysregulated that is a great question um i think there's there's many factors at play uh many of them do go back to our childhood in kind of times when our like core needs weren't met um traumas kind of passed down either um, like genetically or or through just the way that we were raised um and, and and the way that i think about it is each time each time an emotion kind of comes up, but it's it's pushed down, whether that it's shamed by someone else or whether we just don't feel safe to feel it, that then gets stored as like emotional debt. And the more that this happens and the more extreme the events are, you know, like if someone's in a car crash or they um, are in like a really intense fight, you know, things like this, that then creates this fragility in the nervous system, which makes it very hard to, to regulate in a healthy way. Um, and we regulate using the, the ventral, ventral vagus nerve or the ventral brake, and that kind of goes offline. So what happens is people swing from um, like, like heightened sympathetic, which is this like overwhelm, like very stressed, anger, frustration, then down into shutdown or, or freeze state or depression or, or, or lethargy. Um, and that's basically what dysregulation looks like. And there's also... Um, you know, environmental stresses, toxins, um, if you're eating shitty processed foods, if you're working in environments with no access to sunlight and you're kind of sitting under artificial LED lights. Um, there's, yeah, there's a bunch of different ways in which essentially the, the, the system can, can have more stress take, coming in than it's able to fully process. Um, and that creates dysregulation, essentially. Um, is our do you think that in our just the current modern world that we live in is it inherent that we all have this dysregulation it's very common very common it's definitely very common <laughs> yeah there's there's this there's obviously a spectrum um the spectrum being you know some someone who is working on wall street and you know working 12 14 hours a day uh in a big city with no great social connections uh is going to have a lot harder time than someone who's working on a permaculture farm, uh, you know, in, 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 I don't know. Yeah. um, That makes sense. In like Oregon somewhere. Yeah. Um, so because the, the stresses will be so much more intense, there will be less spaciousness and time to digest and process them. Um, and without the social connections to co-regulate with and to kind of buffer some of that, that stress with, and also having, like regular access to spaces for healthy 
emotional release. You know, that could be in indigenous cultures, they use sweat lodges, ceremonies, dances, movement, singing, um, all these different things, which are a way of, of really like moving that energy and allowing it to, to be released. And someone who is, um, I'm just going to pick on the, the Wall Street banker who's working 14 hours a day. He doesn't have time to do all that. Doesn't have time to do that. Is like in, in their head most of the time and not really kind of in their body, like feeling, moving, being outside. Um, it's going to be a lot harder for that, um, for that to happen, basically. So, yeah, I mean, I think really the way that our environment has been designed, it, it hasn't been designed for, uh, to make regulation easy. Um, unfortunately. Yeah. And even, even the way you describe growing up, going to school and having your curiosity kind of reprimanded mm-hmm. or punished, it's another yep. form of that. Uh, I don't know. Uh, it, it seems like it's, it's just not inherent or it's just not in our, in our modern day, the way that everything is structured, the way that work days are structured, the way that school days are structured, the way that even mm-hmm. the way that mm-hmm. sometimes the, idea of what the family is that gets pushed down it seems like all of them are not yeah they're not helpful in a lot of ways as far as this regulation yeah absolutely i mean the family is a great example in that um i i don't i personally don't believe that it's you know really feasible as like a single atomic family unit to raise one let alone like two or three children without help and support without other people like we our ancestors raise children like in a tribe where like the babies would be like passed around the uncles and the aunts and the friends and it was very much like a community affair um and this relatively recent invention of like the atomic family unit i think it makes that really hard for sure um yeah it also just the story that comes along with it that this is what it looks like and this is what it needs to be in order mm-hmm. for it to be you know i think it's just it's it can be very jarring especially when the majority of the marriages in our you know in the western world don't work out anyways and so mm, the story mm-hmm. yeah the story seems very seems very fragile and um in a way it makes me like the way that you talk about our tribal ancestors that's how i i you know <laughs> when you said cuz obviously there's going to be a difference between the the wall street guy and somebody living on a on a farm but living on the farm that sounds it's it's still removed from that ancestral past but it's so much closer mm-hmm. and you're just you know you're interacting with the world you're interacting with plants and uh animals but then also if you're there with people if you're there with a large group of people a large family type unit um it does sound man doesn't it just sound like what our bodies and our minds evolved for is to be in these little groups of people like in the, in nature yeah, honestly, <laughs> I think I, th- I think it does. Um, and I also, I guess, I want to say that, like, I could also imagine uh, like another scenario where there is a very well regulated, emotionally attuned, like Wall Street banker, <laughs> and a very you know dysregulated, traumatized guy working on a farm. Like, it's like the environment definitely does is conducive to certain, right. um, but it but it's it really in the end does come down to our own internal state. And how, how emotionally literate are we? How, how willing are we to feel the full spectrum of emotions? Yeah. How much do we prioritize connection with ourselves and, and other human beings? Yeah. Um, or, or animals for that matter. Um, In pursuing yeah. that, is it, is it really, um, 
I think a lot about East and West, like the difference between our, our Western world and Eastern world. And one of the biggest mm-hmm. things is just having something that you have to pursue or like having an idea of what your life is supposed to be or what you're supposed to accomplish. And mm-hmm. so when it comes to just being willing to experience anything, to sit through anything, it, uh, I guess it just grates against my Western like story. It, it could be, you know, cause I imagine, um, I tell myself, you know, I'm free to do whatever I want, but really I'm not f- completely free. And then I think about, I think about how unfree I could be, you know, I could be Nelson Mandela locked up in prison. Mm-hmm. And then even in that state, what type of freedom could I manage? And at that, mm-hmm. at that point, it's all up here. Like it's all in your, it's all in the way that you see everything in the way that mm-hmm. you experience it and how you accept it and how, whether or not you're telling yourself, this is what I must be doing with my life. This is what I must be accomplishing. Or these are the pleasures that I must experience in order to have a fulfilled life. Mm. It's, uh, is there, is there a pill I can take? I guess is it's there a uh, pill you can take? To, to just get to that point where, um, you know, where you can let it go or like you can be willing to, to experience not getting what you want out of life or, uh, is it just, uh, t- taking a pill is just a joke, but is it like, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. you just really have to meditate or you just have to be willing to sit with your, you sit with reality in long enough that, that the, the idea of what reality needs to be can kind of conform to it or something. Yeah. Well, what comes to mind is the, um, the paraphrasing of Viktor Frankl, uh, where he said in between stimulus and response, there is a space and in that space lies our freedom. And so the question is like, how do we increase that space, basically? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, that's great. And Victor and, Frankl and, is another and, good example of somebody who had to do that, oh, who had to really do it. it. I mean, incredible, yeah. incredible story. Yeah. Um, I mean, in some ways, that's like the, the premise that I built the Nervous System Mastery course on is like, how do, how do we increase that space? Um, and the, what I've kind of come up with, I'm not saying this is the final answer, but what seems to help there's three there's three kind of core components um the first one is interoception which is like embodied self somatic awareness like awareness of our, of our physiology the second is self-regulation so having tools and practices both top down and bottom up that can reground us like when we do get kind of like triggered and when that space goes from being like eight out of ten to like two out of ten like how do we how do we find the space again and then the third piece is emotional fluidity or emotional mastery, which again is the practice of uh, welcoming the full spectrum of, of emotions as opposed to changing, kinking, fixing anything that's, that's wanting to come through. Um, and yeah, I believe that those three things r- really in that order as well um, do over time create a lot more spaciousness. And allow us to be more intentional and allow us to have ultimately more freedom. Yeah. Go through them really quick one more time because that, that you, you said in order. So what was the first one? Yeah. Uh, interoception. Okay. So this is like is awareness of your body. Somatic, somatic awareness. Yeah. So yeah. I use the, the metaphor of like a chef, like learning to improve his taste palate. Right. Uh, you kind of like begin to like the taste palate of your own internal experience. Yeah. Um, and then the second was... Tools. Yeah, so for me, it's mostly breathing practices, but there's also other um, like cognitive reframes, uh, bringing awareness down into your hands or your feet, softening uh, your 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 gaze, kind of like optic flow, as, as Huberman calls it. 
um, and co-regulating with other people. Like there's there's many different ways of of finding that more grounded state of ventral vagal safety. Yeah, and then the third one is emotion, basically emotional awareness, emotional intelligence. Emotional, not only intelligence, but like actually um, the capacity to feel and express the full spectrum of emotions as yeah. they arise. Yeah. So that's kind of one example, I guess, would be like earlier when I was talking about anger, being able to manage anger and you were saying, well, there is another path. You don't have to suppress it. There's a, there's like a healthy way to get it out. Mm-hmm. And, um, so it would be like, it would be like, um, the initial, bef- maybe before, uh, you, you would resist. So, you know, whether it's sadness, anger, fear, you resist through your body. So you said kinking. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I don't know, tightening or whatever. Just being, just being willing to sit with it, to actually like not judge it, not fight against it, but just sit with it and process mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and even the word manage often implies like a, a controlling or a fixing right. or trying to trying to like get it get rid of it in some ways. Mm. Um, so yeah, in the case of in the case of anger, it's a good example because it's it's never healthy to express anger at someone to kind of like be angry at someone that's always gonna pretty much always gonna lead to bad things but allowing it but like allowing anger to kind of flow through you and to be expressed like i am angry at the situation i'm angry at you know at this thing that's really helpful um and when we suppress that we're also suppressing our kind of capacity to set healthy boundaries our capacity to for our kind of life force and our and our energy that's often, you know, people who get depressed, often it's, it's due to, it's related to an unhealthy relationship with anger. Um, I've, I've, there's been a pattern that I've observed. Um, and so, yeah, allowing it to kind of flow through. And then in the example of someone like, like Nelson Mandela, anger would actually show up as like just pure determination. It's this, this, this pure like, like this is not okay in a way that like, you know there's no there's no argument it's just like this <laughs> so and, and so just, maybe not just being willing to sit there but sitting there knowing that you're going to stay alive as long as possible for that one day where you might get out and that's where you channel the anger is that what you're saying yeah i mean it, it almost just becomes like like pure clarity and determination i think yeah and yeah. And, and it's also a sign that you deeply care about you know we don't get we don't get angry about things we don't care about Yeah. yeah Coming from, I, I don't know what your religious upbringing was, but coming from the religious upbringing I came from, the two, I think the two most suppressed emotions or instincts would be anger and then also sexuality. So those two things mm-hmm. get really suppressed and then they manifest in all sorts of unhealthy ways. And so for me personally, like as an adult, learning that those two things are not to be necessarily suppressed has been has been a huge journey it's been a mm-hmm. it's been a tricky one for mm-hmm. you for you i'm curious just like as a practice what does it look like on like a daily do you, do you do something like on a daily basis breath work do you have like a place and a time how does how does it look like for you mm. yeah um for a long time I, I had a weekly breath work practice um sometimes on my own sometimes in groups sometimes one-on-one with someone else um these days it's more um Having like spaciousness for kind of deep check-ins with my with my partner, with my wife, um, and just like permission for 
withheld emotion to kind of surface and to be expressed and to be shared and, and witnessed. Um, plant medicine ceremonies too is another kind of container. Uh, saunas as well. Um, sometimes uh, going for like long cycle rides or, or trail runs, sometimes emotion will surface there as well. Uh, it's, it's really just a practice of like creating spaciousness and permission for these pieces to arise. Um, and, and for me, I'd say grief was the first one that I kind of like worked with in, in a very deep way. Um, and then shame as well has been another kind of powerful one to work with, which it's interesting saying it's an emotion because I experience it more of like as a, as a constricting of all other emotions. It's like it kind of yeah. shuts down everything else. Um, I, I, I feel the same way. It's like a, it piggybacks other emotions too. Yeah, you can cross wire shame with yeah. other ones as well, especially like sexuality. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So then for you, it's more of just um, being being aware of yourself, wanting to be open, like open to the any anything that's trying to go through you and just kind of mm-hmm. going throughout your day, whatever your activities are. And then you do go find activities that will help like, I, you know, obviously for me, there's just something about exercise. Like I can't not exercise because if I don't exercise, it just gets too built up. It's like too mm-hmm. much inside of me and mm-hmm. um, a good run or a good sauna session does the yeah. same thing. It just kind of clears it out. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that as well. I feel the same way. It really does. It can feel though, like you have to, um, it, <laughs> it feels like sometimes it can feel like you've got this list of things that you've got to do. And if you don't do uh-huh. that list of things, you're not going to feel healthy. You're not going to feel like yourself. And so mm-hmm. it, it, for me, well, for me particularly, it's like I can, it's like I've got to get enough sleep. I've got to eat healthy. Like you were saying, don't eat junk processed foods, uh, meditate, exercise, do, do my own work, which is writing and, and having conversations. And it's like you get through all of that and then you get to a point where you're like, okay, I'm ready. Like I'm ready for, for whatever, you know, emotion is going to come. But if I, if I can't get through those things on a daily basis or a weekly basis, it's almost like mm-hmm. it gets a little bit stuck in there. It's like I, I, uh, I get jammed up or something. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely practices which increase or limit our capacity and our bandwidth. Sure, sleep being a really obvious one. Um, I think I've been trying to orient more towards, instead of like having this checklist of things, more just waking up and being like, what do I, what does my body feel like doing right now? Like, like what, what feels nourishing right now? And that might be mm. a run. It might be, it might be meditating, it might be sauna, but that way it's, it's less of like a checklist of things where I'm only okay once I've done these things to like, <laughs> like, like what, what would actually feel really good right now? Um, and then following, following that. Yeah, that makes sense. And then also with that, then you're, you are, I guess you're, you're like living the practice of just listening to yourself and letting letting it mm-hmm. you know letting your body or letting your emotions come at like come out of you as it needs to come out of you mm-hmm. it's interesting yeah i, I think that's I, that I, oh go I, ahead ideally <laughs> ideally <yeah. laughs> doesn't always happen but yeah that's the, that's yeah. the hope. yeah yeah absolutely i think um i want to say that's kind of the point of kundalini yoga right is i don't know if you've ever mm-hmm. experienced that but that's like it's it's about a f- kind of following that thing inside of you that's trying to get out mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah yeah, yeah. Well, um, Johnny, we've been all over the place and uh, I really appreciate you doing this with me. I think that you, you've got this depth of knowledge about this experience from like the the personal story, which I appreciate you sharing 
all the way to, you know, the work that you've put in to try to understand yourself. And I think, I think that's why I get, I'm fascinated by people like you because you put in so much work on yourself that then you're able to sh- turn around and say like, Hey, here's some things that are helpful for other people. And it almost feels like that's what, um, that's what we're supposed to be doing anyways, right? Is we're supposed to be figuring out how to help out our tribe. Hmm. Yeah. Well, well, thank you for the kind words. And yeah, I feel like we each have a gift of some sort to contribute to, um, to the wider world. And in some ways, like the first chapter of life is like figuring out what that is. And then the, the next is more around how do I then share this with other people? And, and like, what is, what is uniquely mine to give? I think is a great question. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And I think you're doing a, you're doing a good job of asking that. Um, if people wanted to find you, where would they go? Uh, online, um, website, social media, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Uh, it's Johnny Miller, J O W N Y M one L L E R. That's a a tricky one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then I have, uh, I have a podcast, the curious humans podcast. Um, I think 52 episodes uh, at the moment. Um, and then also the, the nervous system mastery is a cohort based course. We're running the next one in September and the website for that is nsmastery.com um, and people are welcome to check that out also feel free to email me as well my, my email's on there too okay awesome and then um, just one final question before we wrap things up I'm just curious um, I ask people sometimes what are you reading right now who are you listening to right now like what's what's mm. uh, got your curiosity right now yeah um, great question so what am I listening to right now I've been you mentioned Carl Jung earlier, and I've, I've been loving the Emerald podcast, uh, which is, it's, it's the most psychoactive podcast I've, I've ever listened to. And uh, <laughs> he, he, he both produces it beautifully himself, and it's like a weaving of, of some of the ideas that we've talked about today. So that, that would be the podcast. Um, what am I reading? A uh, couple of books, actually many books right now, but The, the Creative Act by Rick Rubin, I'm, I'm very much enjoying. Um, and also the extended mind by Annie Murphy Poole. And she talks about how, uh, this idea that like, we're, we're like a, like a brain in a, in a vacuum is just ridiculous. And she kind of like expands on hundreds of examples of embodied cognition, how we use the tools around us to actually think in different ways. Um, or, or how, like, say me holding this cold can of, of water actually has an impact on my perception of you know i might perceive you as being slightly more cold and slightly more like unfeeling you know it's it's really fascinating <laughs> yeah that is fascinating and so um, what, what was the book called the extended mind the extended mind okay cool yeah i like to ask people because i'm always like looking for that next spark of like which which rabbit hole i can go down um mm. so I, I, i'm making a list of everything that everybody shares but again johnny um this was awesome i really appreciate you taking the time and um uh Again, it was fun. And I think there's just so much depth here. And I think a lot of people could benefit from it. So again, thank you. Cool. Well, thank you so much for the questions. Yeah, I had a lot of fun as well. Yeah, thank you. This is great. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Explorer Poet Podcast. Exploring the blurry line between our physical world and our abstract realities. I hope you find this and every episode worthwhile. To find links to my guest websites and social media accounts, and for all Explorer Poet content, 
please visit my website, explorerpoet.com. You can also follow on Instagram at explorerpoet or on Twitter at explorerpoetpod. If you have comments or suggestions, please send an email to explorerpoet at gmail.com. Please follow and rate the podcast on your favorite app. And if you really, really want to be supportive, please share an episode with a friend. Thanks again.